beauty is only skin deep, I've been told. But now, with skin having pluripotency, its value has gone up. You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and with me today is Dr. Jonathan Marino. Dr. Marino is the David and Lynn Selfin Professor of Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you very much for joining us. We're going to start by talking about Dr. James Thompson's recent research published in November of last year about the reprogramming of skin cells to act like stem cells. This work has also been published by Shinya Yamanada's team in Kyoto. Could you tell me, Dr. Marino, where you think this research is going? Well, Maury, the, the hope, of course, is that instead of using human embryos in order to get pluripotent cells for both for research purposes and perhaps someday for therapeutic purposes, actually putting cells into patients' bodies, the hope is that instead of doing it that way, that it, that it will be possible to produce disease-specific cells for research purposes and cells that can be reprogrammed healthy to be healthy to be placed back into patients' bodies. So this would avoid both the immunological problem, you'd have DNA-specific cells, genetically appropriate cells for each patient, and you'd avoid the problems associated with getting embryos, the social controversy around embryos for embryonic stem cells, and the, the problems in getting human eggs for research purposes, which has turned out to be a big problem for the stem cell biologists. Having said all that, the notion that we're finished with human embryonic stem cell research has been, uh, I think, has been overblown in the press and by uh, some advocates. Unfortunately or fortunately, it will be, still be necessary to do embryonic stem cell research for some time for a lot of technical reasons and scientific reasons, partly to learn more about pluripotency and to see if these skin cells and, uh, and probably other bodily cells that can be turned into pluripotent cells, whether they function the same way, whether they produce the same proteins and so forth, that embryonic stem cells do when they are pushed in the direction of becoming certain kinds of body cells. So the role of the NIH, the role of the folks who are creating their own embryonic stem cell lines will continue to be absolutely crucial. And I'm a little concerned that people are failing to appreciate that partly because, you know, frankly, it's politically convenient to get this particular issue off the table in election year. If I understand you correctly, you're saying that we need new lines, new stem cell lines, as we don't know if they're all going to be biologically equivalent, that certain cell lines may be suitable for a given biomedical research application that others wouldn't be. That's correct. And, and there's also indication that the 21 presidentially approved lines, and let me be clear about this, more if people haven't been following it as closely, there are 21 embryonic stem cell lines that the NIH has for which the NIH can provide federal funding. The president has said that he will not extend federal funding to any embryonic stem cell lines derived from human embryos after August 9, 2001, when he gave a famous speech announcing his policy. In the meantime, there are several hundred, perhaps 400, perhaps more, embryonic stem cell lines with different properties that have been produced around the world, including a couple of dozen or so at Harvard by the Doug Melton Lab, that are being used in research around the world. I can tell you about a project that I'm involved in, in in Beijing, for example. But those lines are not eligible for federal research support. A concern that some people have voiced to me is that the 21 lines, although in theory embryonic stem cell lines reproduce indefinitely, that they are developing mutations 
not well understood exactly why, but there are environmental factors, you know, and radiation and so forth. And so they are becoming less useful as they continue to go through multiple passages. When the government doesn't buy in or fund research, something happens within our society. We have seen this, at least I believe, we have seen this in the whole field of fertility, which has become a $3 billion business totally unregulated by the government, dealing with people who are under stress because they can't have children, want children. Nothing is set as far as price is concerned. And the industry goes on with only really those people who can afford it being able to obtain this kind of research. I imagine the same thing will happen if indeed stem cell research becomes a private industry with all of the knowledge and hopefully cures of disease being controlled outside the government. Yeah, there is a price to be paid in terms of regulation when the very early phases of a field are not structured by a federal role in this country. And the fertility example is a good one. Not many of your listeners may be old enough, as I am, to remember in 1980 when uh, President Reagan ended NIH support of in vitro fertilization research. And one of the reasons, I believe, that we now operate in what people have called the Wild West with respect to fertility, and there are many, many, obviously, very respectable and ethical fertility specialists out there, but there's, there's also a certain amount of corner cutting being done in other, in other places. And I believe that the lack of uniformity of standards has a lot to do with the fact that the federal government took itself out of that role and didn't give the kind of guidance, for example, that it did in the recombinant DNA area which has been very important. There's been a recombinant DNA advisory committee for decades. It's been very important in that area. So it's very unfortunate, I think, when the federal government is not part of something. And in fact, the national academies, as you may know, have created their own guidelines for embryonic stem cell research at the behest of the scientific community in the absence of a great deal of NIH guidance. And I co-chaired the committee that developed these guidelines three years ago. And I have to say that they have not only been adopted by every major American research institution, but also they've been very influential abroad. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and with me today is Dr. Jonathan Marino. Dr. Marino is a professor of ethics at the University of Pennsylvania, sponsored by David and Lynn Selfen. Thank you very much. We've been talking about the recent work showing that skin cells can be reprogrammed into stem cells. Recently, the president has taken credit for this, saying that his veto of the Stem Cell Research Enhancement Act, which he has vetoed twice after it had been passed both by the Senate and the House, shows that really this has been the reason that this science has been driven, basically that his veto really has helped the scientific community. Well, it's, you know, of course, every presidential administration takes credit for everything good that happens and blames everything bad on the previous administration or on somebody else. So this is totally in keeping with the way the political world works. But the reality is it's hard to understand how the president's veto would have affected the Yamanaka team in Kyoto. And in fact, it's interesting that Dr. Yamanaka is moving part of his work to California because he says it's such a friendly place for stem cell research. And of course, California is where we have a $3 billion commitment to support stem cell research, including embryonic stem cell research. So I, I find the White House argument somewhat unconvincing. In fact, others have said, including Dr. Thompson, that the political controversy actually delayed the results that he achieved last fall. You know, Governor Schwarzenegger did give money to the California Institute for Regeneration Medicine, and I believe it was on the ballot, and really that there was a, a significant vote there that showed that Americans 
do want stem cell research to continue. A recent survey by Pew showed the same thing. But I, I think with the exception of California and I think Massachusetts, the states are really scrambling for money to continue this type of research. Well, there are about another half dozen states that have committed. Wisconsin in certain forums has. You mentioned that there's Connecticut, the New Jersey. New York has committed in, in the governor by executive order has committed $600 million. He wants to be $1.2 billion. But there is controversy within the board that is supervising that this, the disbursement of those funds right now that's going to have to be resolved. So, you know, what's happened to a great extent, Maury, is that the controversy has sort of spilled over from the federal level to all of these states. And this is really not a good way, in my opinion, to make science policy. You take a, you know, a moral controversy, a scientific controversy at the federal level, and then you, you localize it and you reproduce it. And every state is having its own reaction, every state that wants to get involved. So I think it's really a, not a good way to do science policy, and it's very inefficient. But I think in the, in the, ultimately we will see advances, but it's, you know, it's not the way that you would like to see things happen. You bring up an interesting point. Much of the work being done at universities are being funded by private industry. Therefore, the various discoveries often become the property of private industry and have to go through the various patent rules where if the government is funding it, you're under the guidelines of the National Institute of Health. And I wonder if under this system that we're now working with private industry becoming involved, if some of this information is slow to be used by other scientists around the world. Well, what's happening particularly in the embryonic stem cell area, Maury, right now is that private groups, are, venture capitalists, are not getting into the area in the United States. There are only several companies that are really working in the area, and the reluctance of capital to get into this field is partly because they don't like to get in an area that is unregulated, where they know what the rules are, and because of the, of the political controversy. You know, they don't want to be shut down. There are a couple of states that actually seem to have laws in the books that would criminalize this work. So, you know, that's not a way to attract capital to a new area of, of biology. The patent issue is an interesting one. The Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, which is an offshoot of University of Wisconsin, claims the patent on the process that Dr. Thompson developed 10 years ago that isolated human embryonic stem cells from human embryos. And that means that in theory, they have what, what the patent lawyers call reach-through reach rights. So any, any product of human ESL research would in theory be subject to these rights that Worf has. Now, Worf has said with, with respect to California that they will not insist on those rights if any nonprofit entity like a university uses that technique but that they will insist on it if a private entity uses that technique. Now, that is being litigated. There are lawyers who claim that the technique does not qualify under patent law, that it was a, the technique that was applied in Wisconsin 10 years ago was already known to uh, veterinarians, for example. So I'm not an expert on patent law. I don't want to make any statement about that except to say that it is now being litigated and there's controversy. You know, you mentioned that industry does not want to invest money in an area that they don't feel is a level playing field. How do you think the stigma of our policy has affected young scientists who are involved in this work? You know, you're going to spend your whole career pursuing something that you don't know whether you'll ever be able to actually practice. Exactly right. Yeah, and I think the, the key word you use, which is exactly right, is young scientists. But I think the real problem is that, you know, I like to say, put it this way, 30 years from now when the, or less, maybe 10 years from now when the Nobel Prizes are being handed out, you know, in, in physiology or medicine, 
for stem cell biology work, will they be handed out to Americans? And the point there is that people in their early 20s, as you know, you know, they're making their career decisions, what areas of science they're going to focus on, partly based on what their professors can do, what their, what their lab directors do. And if their lab directors aren't in this field, then they're not going to be in the field. It's not, I think, an immediate problem, but it's a, it's a problem we could see manifest itself down the road. I want to thank Dr. Jonathan Marino, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing the new breakthroughs that are taking place almost daily in stem cell research. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to check out our website at www.reachmd.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.